Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by... Kerry Crack, columnist, editorial board. Metro editor, Greg Jefferson. And we have a special guest who I'll introduce in a minute. I, before we, we do that, I wanted to mention that uh, we're recording this on Monday morning, and we just learned yesterday uh, that the Texas Observer, oh. which has been, uh, you know, a powerful institution uh, uh, in in journalism in this state for 68 years. Uh, this was the home to Molly Ivins early in her career, Ronnie Duggar, lots of other you know, titans of Texas journalism, and uh, that it's going to be it's going to be shutting down. And it's a big loss for Texas. I, I just personally, I would say like uh, years ago, there was a, a, an anthology of Texas mm-hmm. observers work. I think it was 50 years of the Texas exactly. observer, which I would recommend to anybody who's interested in the history of, of politics and, and yeah, culture in the, in the state. I learned a lot. I mean, I Look, I grew up in the Valley. I've spent most of my life in Texas, but I learned a lot from it. And uh, uh, this is a big loss. I mean, I just I hope that the, there's there's something else that kind of fills that void. It's the saddest news I saw yesterday yeah. on social media. Yeah, so um, anyway, we're t- um, sorry to see that happen. But I, again, I would encourage people who, uh, you know, who love journalism, if you haven't if you haven't read, you know, the anthology on, on te- from the Texas Observer to to seek that out. Um, today, we're really happy to have as our special guest, uh, someone we've, I think we've mentioned you on the podcast. Is, is Greg was talking, we <laughs> yeah, started like, like how we know stories that mention you. Uh, but yeah. we actually have you here. Uh, Ananda Thomas is the uh, executive director of ACT4SA, which I think uh, most of the, our listeners would know, is the organization that got the Justice Charter Amendment uh, on the May ballot. Ananda, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, we had we had Danny Diaz from the uh, Police Officers Association last week. You know, uh, talking about why he opposes this. So this will be uh, we'll, you can you can do a counterpoint to this. I, I wanted to start, and I think you and I have talked a little bit about this before, but to talk about when the petition drive to get this on the ballot started, and you know what the original goals are when you when when you were looking at uh, existing policies in the city. What what did you feel needed to change? Yeah, it's really based off of frustration and even a little bit of desperation. I mean, we've seen policies such as no-knock warrants and banning the chokeholds not actually make it to a city council vote. Uh, We saw the Grace Act get watered down to a resolution to protect abortion rights. Uh, Been working to codify the site and release program, which has been in place since 2019, so it stays in place. Um, and so when we don't have city leadership that's willing to be bold and take these steps, we take it to a vote of the people. And, and just to make, to make sure that, that, that people who are listening are clear on this, when you talk about – when we talk about the site and release um, program, codifying the site mm-hmm. and release program, we're, we're talking about a lot, of, a lot of what you all want to codify. These are, these are policies that are in place, but they, they, they leave room for officer discretion right now. Correct. Right. So you have so right now that what you all are doing would would basically codify the, the idea that that officers cannot arrest someone for low level marijuana offenses. Uh, it would add abortion. Uh, uh, this would decriminalize abortion. It would. Uh, although I think the the district attorney has already said that this is something that he's not prosecuting. Prosecuting and, and and police officers are are have said that they're not arresting anyone for that. Um, and I think uh, it would. It would also uh, – there's been a lot of talk about expanding the site and release. But in looking at it, the thing that really I think s- stands out that you all added, which was something that was I think considered early on in the, for the site and release program, is uh, graffiti 
offenses up to $2,500. And that's the, <laughs> one of the things that's gotten talked about a lot. Um, I've also heard uh, people who are against this complain about uh, uh, property theft up to $750, but that's already in the second release program. So right. we, we, I, guess, I guess getting to the graffiti issue, because as you know, that's something that's been talked about a lot. Uh, Councilman Manny, Manny Pelias has talked about he's worried about uh, churches or you know pl- uh, places of, of faith being targeted for, by, uh, for graffiti offenses and people not being uh, arrested for that. You know, what's, what's your response to that? Yes. Yeah, so state law actually states that if you are graffitiing a school, a community center, a church, that that's automatically a jail felony. Mm-hmm. So that's not included. There are special protections for that. The reality is that for most of this low level graffiti, you're talking about kids who maybe fell in with the wrong crowd and maybe, you know, tag something up, a stop sign or something yep. like that. And we're talking about a compassionate policy to get a citation to appear in court and to have a chance to go to a diversion program. Um, They can be charged, charges can be dropped, but it's really up to the discretion of the judge. What we are doing is directing our officers to give that citation to appear in court, to give that chance, uh, because we know that incarceration is a system that is actually feeding more into poverty and therefore crime. in Texas, about 20% about, of folks that are incarcerated reoffend, And nationally, if you're looking at that, that's even higher. We have an 8% reoffender rate for folks that go to our diversion program. So we're cutting that in half by giving folks a chance to keep their jobs, keep their housing, and still learn their lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, very early in this process, I think even before the, this, they, the city had determined that you had the, the right number of uh, uh, enough signatures, you know, legitimate signatures to uh, um, to get on the ballot. You had City Attorney Andy Segovia saying um, most of these provisions are in violation of state law, and we're not going to the city. Even if this passes, we're not going to be able to enforce them. I think the only one uh, provision that he said would would stand is the creation of a justice director for the city. Um, I know that there. I know you all have been frustrated. Uh, by this, but to talk a little bit about, I mean, before you, when it's still not even clear that you're, you're going to be on the ballot, you know, you had the city attorney saying, this, we're just, we're going to ignore most of this, even if it passes. What was your response to that? Yeah, it is pretty frustrating because this is advocacy that can change, right, uh, a voter's ideas before something's, before they even get a vote on it. Um, and at the end of the day, whatever we as the voters pass and the constituents of San Antonio, your only job as city leadership and the city attorney is to work your hardest to enforce this how we can. Uh, what the city attorney put out there was very misleading. He's speaking about legalizing abortion and legalizing cannabis. We're decriminalizing this. We are guiding our officers to not arrest for these low-level nonviolent offenses and relieve this burden on our jails, which are overcrowded and understaffed, relieve the burden on these court dockets and on our officers that we're literally just giving more and more things to arrest for. Um, The city of San Marcos passed an ordinance codifying site and release. No issue there. We know that this is possible. We've had six other cities decriminalize uh, cannabis. We've had other cities that have passed ordinances to ban no-knock warrants, to ban chokeholds, and have had no uh, challenges from the state. So we know these are possible. The only new thing really on here besides the justice director is decriminalization of abortion. And that's because a trigger ban just went into effect this past August. So, 
you know, we're still seeing how far we can go with our home rule city powers to protect those that are most vulnerable in our communities. So if if it passes and the city attorney uh, continues saying, which I think he will, that the city is basically going to ignore these. What what recourse does that leave you? I mean, do you, do you is there some legal action that you would take, or what? How would you deal with that? Uh, there's definitely legal pathways that we can take, right, um, to you know encourage the city um, to enforce these. Um, we are hoping that we wouldn't have to take anything like that with the city. That enough of a pressure campaign can work. I mean. Whoever is in our city council, including our mayor, they're going to have to answer to their voters and their constituents why they are going against the will of the people that put them in office. Um, and we saw this happen in Harker Heights. They had decriminalized cannabis through ballot initiative this past November. Uh, city council said, we're not doing this. We're taking this down. And they organized to get enough signatures uh, to put a referendum on the ballot this May so that this could go through. And they have had a lot of pressure and a lot of angry constituents contacting them. It's going to be really interesting to see if they can actually keep their offices. And our city council and our city leadership need to think about that. So the Texas Alliance for Life almost immediately challenged. <laughs> I mean, as soon, almost as soon as it was certified, they, they went straight to the, to the state Supreme Court, basically to create obstacles for it. In, in retrospect, do you have, um, do you regret at all putting the abortion question in this nope. package because you're exciting? You've exci- I mean, it seems like you've excited kind of the, the anti-abortion crowd and you it wouldn't have been that way had it not been for the inclusion of decriminalization of, of abortion. No, there's no regret for this whatsoever. Um, we're protecting pregnant people's lives. You know, mm-hmm. everybody loves somebody who's thought about an abortion or had an abortion. Straight up. Same way that everybody loves somebody who has at least tried right mm-hmm. cannabis at some point in their life. Um, and we are seeing the effects of this trigger ban law. Um, a recent article had come out showing that states with the most restrictive abortion uh, laws are losing their health care providers. They're moving to other states. They're quitting the business. These health care providers are doing more than abortions. We're talking about STD uh, tests. We're talking about family planning. We're talking about birth control. This is the effect of this. Uh, there was a story of a woman, Amanda, in Austin that went to CNN who uh, her water broke four months into her pregnancy. Clearly not a viable pregnancy. Uh, the doctors had to wait until that the baby's heartbeat was gone, right? And she got an infection because you're very likely to get an infection once your water breaks and you don't do life-saving measures and could have died. Other women are having to go to other states or get unsafe abortions. And so what we're saying here is we will not arrest or surveil our abortion providers or seekers because we're not going to be contributing to a draconian system that is literally putting people's lives at stake. Well, my, my question was pretty much along um, Greg's, what was the, the, the all or nothing approach. And ah. that in, in with, because I mean, I've just, I've listened to some people out there who pretty much support like maybe two or three things, but maybe one, like right. abortion or maybe the, but for instance, the, like the uh, no-knock warrants or the chokehold, that's almost, for a lot of folks, that's almost a no-brainer. Yeah, I'm going to support that. Um, what happens if, if the all-or-nothing approach fails and all this goes down? What's the next step? 
So first off, um, I do want to let folks know that the very last line in this policy language is a severability clause. So should any one piece or portions of this be found to not, like doesn't, it's not upheld in uh, a court, then that will be struck down, but the rest of this will go through. Um, we thought about that uh, because we wanted to make sure that we were at least getting something if we weren't able to get all of these things. But really, it's the fact that we... I feel, and a lot of folks on our team feel that because we have watered things down so much, because we have compromised on some of these things, because we didn't codify abortion federally a long time ago when people have been asking for this, this is why we keep losing and why these laws keep happening and our rights keep getting attacked. We need to have the strongest language possible and make a serious statement for what we want public safety to look like in our community. And that's what we did with this. You talked about, uh, you know, putting the language together. What was, uh, how was, how was it crafted? Was this a group effort or was it primarily local? I know there, that there, as you said, there have been efforts in other cities to do some similar things. Mm -hmm. What was the process like of putting, uh, putting that little, the language together? Yeah, actually there's, uh, several folks that would put this together. Um, obviously the, the cannabis portion, the marijuana portion, uh, was language that we've seen in these other six cities. We did include that the smell of THC or hemp by itself is not probable cause to search somebody. Um, that's different than Austin, and that's because we know that we have medical exemptions. We know Delta-8, right, all these things that are legal. You can't tell the difference by smell if it's something that's legal or not, and we don't have the field testing for that. So we're literally searching people and violating their rights for something that is legal to have. Um, the abortion decriminalization piece was a few folks, um, including some folks that work in reproductive justice working on this. And we did, just like we talked about, we did at first think about deprioritization. And then that same conversation came up of we keep watering things down, right? And then we're not going far enough. And then all these loopholes are found. We need the strongest language. Um Banning of chokeholds and no-knock warrants. We did take some of the language that was already there, but we did um, uh, consult with some other groups, Drug Policy Alliance, Campaign Zero. They have end no-knocks, uh, end no-knocks campaign, um, and did research there because even though there's a few sentences about not um, serving no-knock warrants by SAPD, there are still cases that these are still served on, right? Life-threatening circumstances. That makes sense. Can we lay out policy that doesn't exist on that? So test your audio and video recording equipment within 24 hours before you serve this. Do full surveillance and know who's in the house. Are there children? Are there elderly folks? Are there disabled folks? If there are children, especially school-age children, then serve this if you can during school hours when children are not in the house so they don't get harmed because children have been harmed on no-knock warrants. Um, what else? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, be clearly identifiable as an officer. Announce yourself. Give 30 seconds for folks like an elderly person or disabled person to be able to get to the door in time. We laid out clear policy because we know that these are still being served in some cases and we did not have that in our policies and procedures manual. And that's from legislation that we've seen across the country that we used. Um, the site and release policy is the same ordinance that SA Stance has been fighting uh, to codify for years here. Um, there was a CCR that was being brought forth by Jalen McKee Rodriguez for this. Um, once again, never just got its its chance on the floor. Um, 
And the justice director position uh, was a discussion with several of us. And we actually looked at a charter amendment initiative that's in El Paso right now related to climate justice that has a climate. Climate director? Yes, a climate director. And we were like, this is a really great idea because we as advocates on the ground have felt that we don't always have that connection and that conversation or that person in the city to talk to about criminal justice reform. We don't have impact reports that happen on criminal justice policy that states, hey, are we, what is our active part in reducing mass incarceration and saving public safety dollars, right? Um, this person would do quarterly stakeholder meetings. I saw this in Austin um, because they have a stronger oversight system than us. Their Office of Civilian Oversight does stakeholder meetings such as between the police and the dis- disability justice groups, right? And they have conversations on how do we create better policy that can keep our people safe when the cops are interacting with somebody who might be visually or hearing impaired or, you know, on the spectrum somewhere and not recognize that. This is what that justice director well, one can of the do. Things, because you and I talked about this a few weeks ago, and you're not envisioning creating a new department, but you're having the, one, this yes. one person. and. You gave the example of uh, last year when the city council had to approve the um, the, the use of funds for uh, like a military grade type yes. of weapon for uh, for the uh, the police department. And uh, in, as you envisioned it, this justice director would be somebody who could go to the, who would study the issue before he gets to the council and say, "This is what this is what we're looking at. This is what it would the impact that it would have." Exactly, and, and it would be someone who could. Uh, yeah, just 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 really isolate these public safety issues and and right. That's their full that's their full time job is to look at anything related to public safety. We know that our council members and their staff are very busy on a number of issues, and they are not able to always deep dive into these issues. But to have somebody dedicated to that position that they can go to, that is also aware of this charter amendment initiative and the goals that the city the voters have set for public safety. That's incredibly valuable. And now, address directly. I don't even know who the group, who who's doing it, but the, and you can't turn on the TV or the radio without hearing the, the particular ads mm-hmm. that's that's accusing y'all of not just not just um, supporting or encouraging criminals, but basically y'all criminals yourself, and that's why you're doing this. That's why you're you're putting all this before the vote. Oh address that directly. Yeah, um, you know, change is scary for a lot of folks. Uh, it was scary for a lot of folks when we were fighting for civil rights and for for women's suffrage, right? And we met a lot of opposition and a lot of misinformation out there, but that doesn't mean that it's not the right thing to do. Um, I think the misinformation that they're putting out there is fear-mongering. I think that it's unfair. We've done nothing to attack uh, these folks and their persons personally, but they're also just not giving the full the full facts and details of this. To say that we this would allow for graffiti of churches and school buildings, which is illegal and a felony and not citation eligible, is not right. To talk about looting and rioting in San Francisco and cop cars on fire, that's not citation eligible. Why are you putting images out there of that? But this is how our opposition frankly, has operated for a long time. The police union, you can look it up in a New York Times article in the 1980s when their uh, city council member was talking about just how expensive their health care benefits were on Easter, sent an Easter basket to a council member with a dead rat in it. That's intimidation, right? And that's that's tracked. On, um, in Ron Delord's book, and they said that it was on the wall in the police union, they had a quote that said, if all else fails, 
burn it down to the ground, and live amongst the ashes. This is scorched earth tactics. This is the history of our police union, which I'm glad they're under new leadership, but these are the tactics that they've learned. It's just fear and misinformation to scare voters from change that could be impactful and save lives. You, uh, uh, we were, you mentioned uh, Mayor Nuremberg a minute ago, and um, you were very involved in Fix SAPD, which yes. was um, a proposition two years ago, which came very close to, to passing, and it would have basically taken the power of uh, collective bargaining away from the police union in San Antonio. Um, my memory is that, that Mayor Nuremberg kind of stayed out of the fray in that one. I think he said he supported collective bargaining as a, as a concept, but he didn't really get involved in the campaign. And as far as I can tell, he stayed out of uh, the Proposition yes. A battle. Have you all had any meetings with him, any discussions with him at all? Um, so from the moment of announcing our petition drive, uh, I contacted his staff several times. Uh, the last time actually was like in January or February and haven't been able to get a meeting with them. Um, I do feel I feel like that's a bit unfair and wrong. I do feel like there's been a bit of a door there um, because this is something that's on the ballot when you're on the ballot and something that can change your city charter. There needs to be a discussion. And so we have an open door policy. I would love to ma- meet with uh, Mayor Nuremberg. But unfortunately, I haven't been able to. And I have been talking to his chief of staff since October about this. Have you ever considered Ron Nuremberg an ally, to, particularly in, in, in the matter of police reform? <laughs> um, OK, yes. So thank you for, for <laughs> um, honestly, in police reform. No, I don't. Um, you're talking about the mayor that was at a George Floyd rally saying to hold him accountable. I'm the mayor of this city. Exactly what I was thinking. About. <laughs> Just that but he's never yeah. he's never been with us. The fact right. that anytime we've tried to work with his office, we get pushed off to other staff. I cannot speak with him directly. He was not with us on Prop B, on the police contract, on the budget. He's not speaking up about this. Right. Um, I think that he needs to go further on this. Um, I want to get a little bit of a, a sense about about your background and how you've got you politically became politically engaged and and uh, I apologize for not knowing more about your history <laughs> but but you know what was it um, that I think everyone who does become a political activist they maybe they, they have a, a moment whether it's early in their life maybe it was the example of, you know if, if they're they're someone in their family uh, or people in their community but what was it was there one particular thing early in your life that that mm-hmm. got you engaged? Well, to start, from a young age, I knew that I wanted to do something that was going to make an impact to change people's lives. My mom uh, started an organization called Candlelighters in El Paso. Um, I'm a doctor. That's where you grew up? Um, Partially. And between El Paso and New Mexico, it was like half and half. Um, So her oldest daughter, Jenny, who I never got to meet, um, who's I share a middle name with died of cancer when she was eight. And so my mom started a nonprofit to help families that have kids with cancer, everything from camps to mental health services to paying for things to making sure they have food on the tables for the holidays. So that instilled in me this this uh, need and want to do acts of service. I thought that was social work for a while. And then um, when I was in AmeriCorps, I was very, very frustrated with how the system really didn't allow us to help migrant and houseless youth the way that we should, right? And that's where I learned about, you know, public policy and grassroots organizing and how we could use this to change policy. So that was really the big kicker for me, what set me off on this. But 
in 2020, when I went out to that first protest, for, uh, you know, protesting the death of the murder of George Floyd, I had never seen San Antonio turn out like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were separate things in Leon Valley and Alamo Heights and Castle Hills and areas that you just wouldn't think people would be protesting, right? Talking about racial justice and for police reform. And I knew that this was a movement moment, and I thought about how impactful it was to me, how impactful it is for me having nephews. I mean, racism's real. The first time I got called the N-word, I was five, trying to give a sandwich to a homeless man, right? And I recognized that I didn't want that to be the same, the same community and same experience for my nephews who are growing up in this community and that I needed to do something, and this was a moment to do it. People understood, finally— just how this system has been built and is against so many of us. And that's continued to drive me. I think most recently um, working with some of these families that have been affected with by police violence. Um, oh, nope, not going to do it. Um, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I get emotional, um, but these families really do drive me. Um, just knowing the pain that they go through losing their loved ones, from having folks stuck in the carceral system that can't get out. It's not easy to have to go watch body camera footage of your nine-year-old in his last moments of life and just knowing that you're not going to see justice for this. And it drives, it's, it's, it's going to keep me in this work for a long time um, because I know the lives that are affected and the lives we're trying to save. I had a question, but I don't, I don't think I could. Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, uh, you know, you were you were talking about about the uh, the George Floyd protest and and what uh, I mean. And it was it was a powerful thing. We saw it here and we saw it nationally. And I guess I am curious how you, looking back on it three years ago, because it, it it I think it it galvanized so many people. Uh, but as you know, there was this backlash against it, and the the language which we could devote a lot of time to, to, <laughs> to, to the, the 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 term defunding, which I think mm-hmm. has meant different things to different people. But that that was a word that sort of came out of that out of that movement, and was kind of has been used by the political right, um, right. to you know to uh, criticize the efforts of, of your, you know your organization and others. And so, in light of the the, 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 the that it got so many people engaged, but it also created this 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 backlash. And maybe the backlash would have happened regardless. Yeah. But um, how do you look back at that period? That period of in twenty twenty when we saw that when we saw that um, all that activism happening. I think it was necessary. I think um, it has led this next wave of change. I think it's got. It has made many of our youth become engaged on these issues. I mean, even no matter whether folks think positively or negatively about defund or anything that happened with the Black Lives Matter movement or movement for black lives, we're still seeing the effects on policy. The fact that we can talk about banning of no-knock warrants and chokeholds or decriminalization of marijuana or the fact that we can start recognizing that just jailing the problem away is actually not not the only uh, answer and that this disproportionately affecting our communities of color or black and brown communities that came from there. The fact that we were even able to focus on discipline and limit the role of an arbitrator. So our police chief's decisions upheld on firings that came from prop B that came from George Floyd. I was about to ask you, I mean, with the, with the, with the, yeah, the prop, the prop B they had two years ago after that 
you had the police officers compromise somewhat on on mm-hmm. the the, the uh, when it came to issues of of you know punishment for police misconduct and and I had I've I've often wondered I mean what your take would it was on on like whether that was the the police union saying the climate's changing they're looking at the protests they're having things are changing we're going to have to change and they had new leadership too I understand that yeah absolutely I definitely think so um, I. Th- there, so there was a New York Times article done in 2020 or 2021 from Rhonda Lord, who literally wrote the playbook for police unions. And, and, and in was that, negotiating for the union here. And was negotiating here. And he even said, we're going to have to give up some things for us to survive. There is no way that we cannot answer to this. And we saw that in this last uh, police union negotiations, um, not just in San Antonio, but I think we're seeing it in some other cities too, Austin, San Marcos. Um, are some examples. And that's part of what you win with this. You may not always win the the full policy or the proposition, but you do still get changes that you might not even see right away that are happening six months down the road or a year down the road. And we are, for us to vote saying that we want to protect abortion rights, that we don't believe marijuana users should be in jail, uh, regardless with challenges that happen from the state, although I think that we will win, your mayor is and city council are never going to be able to say, well, we didn't know how the, our constituents felt on this because we voted on this and we told you. And that's going to impact policy forever. In your experiences and in, uh, in perceptions, how do elected officials and, 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 and bureaucrats and the media treat community activists, grassroots movements like yourself? Um, <laughs> it's sometimes very gratifying. I think sometimes we we do get a lot of respect and love, but it is dangerous. Um, I'm having to take steps to make sure that I don't get doxxed right now. I've already had folks that have gotten a hold of my phone number that has sent me harassing text messages during Proposition B. My address had been shared, and that's very real. Um, I was on a call with some other movement leaders across the country, and one woman literally had to move, change her address because she was worried and scared for her and her daughter because threats had been made of folks breaking into her house. Her tires had already been slashed. And, you know, that's the other part of this movement that folks don't see. We are literally putting our lives and on the line and our bodies out there, and I hope folks recognize that because we believe so truly in this transformative change that is going to save lives and move our country forward. What was the nature of the threats you received? Um, you know, I haven't had anything saying that anybody was going to come to my house. These are more harassing about, like, you know, being a criminal, needing to go to jail. And uh, there was something that, that there were a couple of things also that were related to uh, A.J. Hernandez, the 13-year-old that was shot and killed last summer, saying, you know, that he deserved it, right? And that because he didn't have good parents, he deserved that. And I'm in that class of people. So I haven't had anything that's been threatening yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Proposition V, when my then address was shared, it was like, just in case anybody wants it, here this is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't had anything that was clearly direct threats, but I right. know it's not impossible. So you had, I mean, you came really close with Pop. I mean, within two percentage points. And I remember, like, there was a lot of excitement in your yeah. camp that <laughs> night. More so than the police union won. I was like, I'm so happy. Outright yeah, like, depressed. Yeah. Uh, 
with good reason. I mean, uh, given the amount of money they'd poured into that campaign. And it does seem clear that, yeah, I mean, the the union's willingness to compromise was kind of rooted in that in that election. They, they kind of saw the, the writing on the wall. Yep. What are the stakes for you in this election? If in, in, in thinking about it in the same way, like if if you don't succeed at the polls, if you lose, how much of a setback is that for you? So, I mean, this is this is it. Proposition A has to pass or get very close again, like Prop B did, mm. for there to be lasting effects on on policy, both right. locally right. for the city and for the county. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of our, you know, our own reputation, our own resources as an organization or personal organizers that is writing on this, too. But mm-hmm. it's it's that long term. It's like the immediate and the long term change in the narrative that goes out there, the direction for city policy. If this does not come close, we lose that. Okay. And what happens to the to the motivation uh, of the organizers of the movement? Um. Well, you know, there's going to be some folks that are might leave or might stop because it is hard to consistently get beat down. But I can speak for myself and my organization that we're going to continue doing our work because we know that there are so many folks relying on us and depending on us to get the changes that they need to see, to continue to do this advocacy and keep the movement alive. Do you have a sense of what the next step might be? Uh, well, uh, should this pass... Uh, Court challenges. What kind of planning are you doing right now? Because you know, if this if this succeeds, you know, at least Texas Alliance for Life is going to like probably the next day go, yeah. to, go to court. What's your strategy at this point? Yeah. Um, so you know, to be able to step in as interveners and bring our case, we have um, a lot of a lot of great allies that are. In the legal world, are that they, are they lawyers? <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, yes, so, yes. Pro bono. So, okay. so we do have some lawyers, right? We're ready to tee up on that. I'm sure you know. Same with our opposition, uh-huh. and see how far we can go with this. But I really hope our city's with us. You know, SB four, they're ready to go to bat for sanctuary cities for immigrant rights. Um, and I think it's going to be very telling if they're not willing to do the same for pregnant people's rights, for women's rights, for, for black and brown lives, um, for all these things that our mayor has actually even said he supports. He stood strong on abortion rights, right, and reproductive rights. He said that he doesn't believe jail should be full of pot users, right, that we need to protect our veterans and our folks that are using medical cannabis. He stood strong on site and release next to our district attorney and several of our council members, um, so I hope that they're going to fight just as hard for this as they did for Sanctuary Cities because that was just as worthy of a cause. Well, Nanda Thomas, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, good luck with all your work uh, going forward. And, thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you so much. Uh, everybody who's listening, uh, hope you're doing well. We're going to be back again soon. And uh, take care. Awesome. Awesome.